All right, in terms of announcements for this week, uh, Thursday night, uh, Doug Karn is going to be covering uh, the continued study from the uh, DM2 material related to the life of Christ. Remember, we had the DM2 course back in, I think it was in September, covered a good bit of the first half of that material, and but didn't quite get to the halfway point. And so that's going to be covered uh, the next uh, Bible classes, Tuesday, Thursday Bible classes, because I will be leaving to go to Ukraine uh, tomorrow afternoon. And so you can also be in, in prayer for that. Um, communion's been postponed this month to the third Sunday, which I believe is the 18th. Is that right? I don't have the piece of paper up here, but I think it's close to be close enough you can figure it out. And so we will have communion on that particular Sunday due to uh, due to my absence. I don't think that there is anything else that's uh, that I'm aware of that needs to be uh, announced at this point. All right, how shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that they are in right relationship with God and in fellowship, walking by the Spirit. It's God the Holy Spirit who teaches us, who helps us to remember uh, the word that we have hidden in our heart. He is the one who helps us to apply it, and it is only on the basis of our walk by the Spirit that we're able to grow and mature as believers. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you're in, you're in right relationship with God. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful for all the many blessings that you've given us for the way in which you supply all of our needs and the way that you've given us so much in Christ. Father, above all, we're thankful for a salvation based on faith alone in Christ alone, that works are not the issue at the point of salvation. The only issue is Jesus Christ and trusting in him and him alone. Father, tonight as we study, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things that we're focusing on. They, they, they may enable us to understand more fully uh, your final judgment as well as the glories of our salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight may or may not be our last class on God's plan for the ages. It depends on how, how far I get in this material. There's one area that we have left to cover in understanding the uh, dispensation, the final dispensation of the millennial kingdom or the dispensation of the Messiah, age of the Messiah. This is one of the, the last dispensation that's length is, is related, whether, whether it's, you're talking about a dispensation or an age, they, they both cover a thousand years and it's sort of phase one to eternity. The uh, kingdom begins, as I pointed out, with some judgments. And the uh, second coming of Christ as he comes to establish his kingdom on the earth. And it will end with a rebellion 
led by Satan. He's released after a, th- after a thousand years of confinement and leads a rebellion against God, and then that is completely uh, quashed by God, and then there will be the final judgment. So we're looking at this final judgment, the great white throne judgment, and a lot of people do not understand and comprehend the significance of the great white throne judgment. There are several judgments in Scripture. We have eight judgments and four resurrections. And a lot of times people think that there's just one judgment. That's been influenced by amillennial theology that teaches that this age is coterminous or synonymous with the kingdom. It's a spiritual form of the kingdom. In amillennialism, a term that means no millennium, no literal thousand-year reign, in amillennialism, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sat at the right hand of the Father, which in the idiom of the New Testament period, sitting at someone's right hand was a position of honor. It's not a position of authority. It's a position of honor. Unfortunately, that was uh, later in the development of amillennial theology misunderstood that Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is ruling there from David's throne. Now, you screw up your face a little bit and say, well, how could that be David's throne? David ruled from a literal throne in a literal city called Jerusalem. Yes, if you interpret the Bible Literally, where the words mean the same kind of thing that you would assign the meaning to from in everyday language, then yes, David's throne would refer to a literal throne ruling over a literal kingdom centered in the literal city of Jerusalem. And that is what we believe. We believe there will be a time when Jesus returns to the earth and then he sits on his throne, the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. But in amillennialism, they interpret things on the basis of allegory. One of the reasons that we know that allegory is wrong is because when when we find within Scripture prophecies that are given in Scripture and also fulfilled in Scripture, we know that they are fulfilled literally. Those prophecies are not fulfilled in some sort of spiritualized allegorical manner. When the prophet um, Micah, foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He wasn't using the term Bethlehem as a reference to some sort of idealized small village. He meant literal Bethlehem that had been founded by a man named Ephrata, or Ephrat. And that's exactly what he described. And so many times we have these prophecies in Scripture that are literally fulfilled. That's how we know that prophecy should be literally fulfilled. Unfortunately, within certain systems of theology, what they've done is they've come along and they've taken these these uh, verses that haven't been fulfilled yet and they've allegorized or spiritualized them so they no longer refer to something that is literal. But everything that's been fulfilled, they interpret interpret literally. So when we look at an amillennial and... Our even a post-millennial system, all we have is one future judgment for believers and for unbelievers, and that would be the final judgment. That's how they would interpret it. But what we see 
in our study of Revelation 20 is that the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, is for unbelievers. It is not for believers. So there are these other judgments. So let's just review these other judgments. We see that there is there is a judgment that takes place in heaven following the rapture. At the end of the church age, there is an event known as the rapture of the church when all believers in Christ, whether they are alive or dead, will be resurrected from the dead, raptured to heaven, and there we will be with the Lord. And there is a judgment seat there referred to as the bema, which is a Greek term that describes an elevated platform where a judge at an athletic event or a judge in a civil or criminal court would sit on that raised uh, dais, and this was called the bema, the judgment seat of Christ. So this is not to determine who will go to heaven or who will go to the lake of fire. It is for believers, for Christians only, and it is an evaluation of the present life to determine what of eternal value was accomplished in this life, whether it was done by the spirit or by the sin nature. We accomplish things in the flesh. They may be good and moral and wonderful, but they have no eternal value. If they are accomplished by walking by the spirit, then they have eternal value. The key passage for the uh, judgment seat of Christ is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you were here on Sunday morning, I read the passage out loud and begins in verse uh, verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation of context is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, six items are mentioned. Now, this is this is a descriptive. This is sort of a this is a metaphor, as literal. Those who believe in literal interpretation, we believe that there's the use of everyday figures of speech and language that, that doesn't deny symbols, but it's clear from the passage what are, are representative ideas. Gold, silver, and precious stone has to do with that which can survive fire. They are purified by fire. Wood, hay, and straw represent things that cannot withstand the, the uh, purifying fires. And so our life is compared to that. We produce a lot of different things in life, whether we're walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh. We can't always tell the difference. We do not always know. Just because you pray every day, if you're not praying in fellowship, then it's wood, hay, or straw. The Lord said um, that that if, if in Psalm 66, 18, if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear because we're not walking in fellowship with God. In the New Testament, we need to walk by the Spirit. It's one or the other. So we may be out of fellowship, and we can witness, we can pray, we can memorize Scripture, we can read our Bible from cover to cover, but it has no eternal value. It's on the level of morality. We can, on the other hand, we can, if we're in fellowship... Whatever we're doing out of Christian service or just to help somebody or be kind to somebody, this has eternal value. So how do we tell the difference? Well, we don't. We can't look at our own lives, much less anybody else's life, to see if that they're, what they're producing has eternal value. We're told in verse 13, each one's work will become clear, future tense. It will become manifest 
for the day will declare it. Now, that's a term that's related to another phrase, the day of Christ, which is a term for this judgment seat of Christ. The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test or evaluate each person's work. So the metaphor here is that of a refiner's fire. A refiner's fire is to burn off the dross, to burn off the impurities, to expose that which has value, not to expose that which does not have value. So the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is not to expose our failure, but to expose what's been accomplished in our life that has enduring value. Now, obviously, we're going to be able to tell that some people don't have a lot because when they get done, they can walk away holding everything in their hand. Some people won't be able to carry it away in a freight train. They will have had a spiritual life focused on the Lord, and the, God, the Holy Spirit, would have worked tremendous amount of fruit. Would have worked a tremendous amount of fruit in their life. So the the text goes on to say, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So that which endures, that which survives the evaluation that burns off the wood, hay, and straw, which is the that which is produced in the flesh, the morality that's produced in the flesh. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. So there's one who has something that survives, and for that they're rewarded, and those that will end up with nothing won't lose their salvation because salvation isn't based on works. Ephesians 2.89 says that it's not by... Uh, excuse me, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In Titus 3.5, we're told it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not by works, but rewards are based on works. The works are what we, what we uh, accomplish through obedience, walking by the Spirit after we are, after we are saved. So this is the judgment seat of Christ. Then there's the tribulation, and at the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ returns to the earth. With the saints, we've been rewarded in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. We've received our rewards. Revelation 4 depicts us casting those rewards, those crowns, uh, before the Lord as a sign of our gratitude and obedience to him. Jesus returns at the second coming. Now, all of this is described in the scripture as the first resurrection. The first resurrection has three elements to it that are described almost as if you would indicate three platoons within a company, three ranks that come out in that first resurrection. There's the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection and rapture of church-age believers. There's the uh, uh, taking of the two witnesses to heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation. And then there uh, is the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and tribulation saints at the end of the tribulation. These are the uh, believers, Old Testament saints who died and, of course, are buried, and tribulation saints who were martyred, who died during the tribulation, not the ones who survived, but the ones who were martyred during the tribulation period. So then there will be a judgment for those who survive. 
It's described as the sheep and the goat judgment. And this is an evaluation of the Gentiles in terms of, of individually, in terms of their, one of the ways that's depicted in Matthew chapter 25 has to do with their treatment of the Jews who are under persecution and under attack during the tribulation period. So the Antichrist is also judged and he is thrown into the lake of fire. The false prophet is also judged and he is thrown into the lake of fire. Surviving Gentiles and surviving Jews are evaluated and they go, the, the believers go into the millennial kingdom and those who don't will go into uh, torments. Old Testament saints and tribulation saints that were martyred will also be evaluated at this particular time. So we have the first judgments, the Bema Seat. Second judgment is Antichrist. Third is the false prophet. Fourth is the sheep and the goats. Fourth and fifth. Sixth and seventh are the Old Testament saints. Then we have a second resurrection that occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom. That's the one we're talking about with the great white throne judgment. These are, this is the second resurrection, the unsaved who are judged at the great white throne judgment. And it is after that that Satan is uh, set to the lake of fire. Now, I believe that based on some study that we've done in, in, in Matthew and some other places, that when it talks about Satan being confined, it's not just talking about Satan. I think that refers to all of the fallen angels, that they are confined during the tribulation period and they're released at the end of the tribulation period so that's it's not just speaking about satan as an individual but satan and all of his uh, fallen angels are confined during that thousand year reign of christ they're released at the end they uh, foment the rebellion and then they are destroyed and satan is judged so these are the judgments and the the resurrections uh, that take place and then we go into the eternal state. So let's go back and look at our passage. Now, when the thousand years have expired, okay, the millennium is over with. We've been studying that for some time. We focused on the millennial uh, temple and all that was involved with that. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. His prison is the, the abyss. This is in Revelation chapter 20, uh, verse 3, that he is confined to this uh, place called the abyss. Now, remember, if you, if you do, the episode where Jesus is casting the demon out of the demoniacs and he casts them into the swine. And when he is going to cast them out, what was it that those demoniacs said? They said, is it now that you're going to destroy us before our time or you're going to cast us into the abyss? See, that's why I believe that, as, that, that they are in the abyss along with Satan during that time. And this is where he is confined uh, in verse 1, Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit. That's the abyss. And a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit 
and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were completed. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Okay, now, verse 7, when the thousand years have expired, then uh, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So this is his final operation um, his final operation of deception. The, John equates Gog and Magog with the four corners of the earth, which indicates that it is not limited to one particular geographical region. It is talking about the whole world follow in the pattern of a previous rebellion of Gog and, Gog and Magog. And so Satan deceives... He gathers probably billions of people to his standard. And they are going to wage war against God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Their number is identified as the sand of the sea. Now remember earlier in in Revelation, there are a lot of different very large numbers that are given. There are the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, 144,000. There are the uh, 200 million uh, demons that are released from under the Euphrates. So that's a very, very large number. This is an even larger number. This is a number that they don't put a number to it. It is so, so great and so large. So that's how many are going to be deceived. So there's going to be... All these people who are born during the tribulation period, they have sin natures, they have volition, and many of them are going to reject in the midst of the greatest testimony on earth. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Every one of us has done this. We said, I just wish so-and-so, my friend, would, would understand and accept the gospel. I wish there would just be some miracle. I wish Jesus could appear to them, something supernatural. And what do we find? In the scripture, Jesus performed all kinds of miracles in front of all kinds of people, and many of them rejected him. Just, you know, miracles won't do it. The perfect environment of the millennial kingdom won't do it. We can't imagine that. Here, it's going to be perfect. There's not going to be Satan. There's not going to be the activity of the demons. All we've got is our own little internal enemy, the sin nature. And there are going to be a vast number of people that solely on the influence of their own little sin nature, it won't have anything to do with their education. We can't say, all those poor people, they just weren't educated. We do that today, and we're wrong to do it today because education isn't the problem. The problem is the sin nature. That's what God's demonstrating. We can't say, all those poor little people, they just don't have any money. If they had enough money, then they wouldn't have to deal with all those worries about survival. And, and they could really focus on the gospel. It's not an economic issue. It's not a political issue. All those, all those poor people living under the, the tyranny of the communists in China and living under the tyranny of Putin in Russia, living under the tyranny of all of the Islamo-fascists around the world, you know, that, that, that's just secondary issues. Those are just circumstances. What the scripture says is the reason that they're rejecting the gospel is because of their own sin nature. It's not related to environment. It's not related to politics. It's not related to education. It's not related to economics. It's just related to your own rotten little sin nature. 
And some people choose truth. Some people choose to reject it. And it won't matter what the evidence is. Here they are with the Lord Jesus Christ ruling over the planet with perfect government, with where they can see angels, the elect angels. They can see resurrected church-age believers. They can hear all the stories. They will have the best doctrinal teaching in history during the millennial kingdom. And billions will still reject because they choose to in hostility to God. The description of the rebellion is given in verse 9. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The beloved city is the new Jerusalem. The beloved city is the center of the earth. As we're told many times in Scripture, it is where uh, the temple is located, the presence of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will surround the beloved city, and fire at that point comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. They will be incinerated in an instant, and that will be it. Then the devil who deceived them is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are. And at this point, they're the only ones who were there. Now they're joined by Satan, and then they'll be joined by the rest of the fallen angels. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the language in the Greek emphasizes this is eternity. Now, sometimes forever in the Bible doesn't mean forever. It just means for a long time. And there's some people that have come along and they attempt to argue that on the basis of the fact that forever in some passages just means for a long time or until the end of the age, that there's no eternal punishment for unbelievers, that they're punished for a long period of time and then there will be something called soul annihilation and they will just disappear. Their existence will end. But that's not what the Bible is talking about. When you have this kind of a figure where you have day and night forever and ever, and you pile up these terms together, it emphasizes that this is something that goes on forever and ever and ever. Now, following this, there will be a, a judgment again. This is the last judgment. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it. Now, it's a white throne because that emphasizes purity and holiness and righteousness. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. In uh, John chapter 5, verses 22 and 27, the Lord says that all judgment will be given to him from the Father. The reason he is the one who judges is because he is the one who has become a man. He entered into human history and took on true humanity so that the human race is not judged by God. They are judged by another human being. They are judged by the Lord Jesus Christ who is sitting upon the throne, and he is the one who was judged for the sins of the whole world. So he's the one who paid the penalty for their sins, and he is the one who will will judge them. So it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is sitting upon the great white throne. And then we're told from whose face the earth 
and the heaven fled away. And so this indicates fear, that they are afraid of this judgment because of its severity. But there's no place found for them, meaning that they couldn't escape. There's no way to go, no place to go, nowhere to hide. When it's the time for that final judgment, you need to be ready. That's the issue. And the question we all need to ask at some point is, are we ready? Do we have the kind of righteousness that the Bible demands? Now, that's a key word, righteousness. We go back into the Old Testament, and we go to Genesis fifteen six, and we're told that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Not that Abraham was righteous in and of himself, not that he did righteous deeds, not that he was moral, not that he was spiritual, but he believed God, and that faith was what counted for righteousness. The righteousness of God is going to is imputed to him. It's credited to him his account. So that's the issue. Now, later on, as we go through the Old Testament, what we discover is the passages like Isaiah 64, 6, where Isaiah says that, uh, the, that all of our works of righteousness, not our works of unrighteousness, not our bad deeds, but all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. The best we have, if you wanted to list the 10 best deeds that you have in your life that you think should count for your salvation, if you list those, God's going to say, That's a, those are filthy rags. That doesn't count at all. So how do we get righteousness? We've got to go back to Abraham. We trust in God for our salvation. In the New Testament, it's clear it's trusting in Christ, and that's accounted to us as righteousness. So the issue at the great white throne judgment with all of these people, as I said earlier, they're all unbelievers, and the issue is going to be do they have enough righteousness to get into heaven? Do they have the right kind of righteousness? And so if, if we had a scale of value here, and the ceiling represented uh, something that was absolutely perfect righteousness. Some people will have righteousness that might come three inches off the ground. The very best of us might have righteousness that comes six inches off the ground. Others will have righteousness that you'll have to get a microscope out to find. It's not going to be there. But what God says is that righteousness has to reach all the way to the top. It has to be perfect, like his righteousness is perfect. And if we don't have that, then we're not going to be able to get into heaven. He's going to evaluate their righteousness. Now, Titus 3, 5, which I quoted earlier, says that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. So they're going to flee before him. And then John says in verse 12, Then I saw the dead, the dead, this is those who are spiritually dead. They have probably had died physically, but now they are alive in some interim body before God. But they are all dead spiritually because the only way to become spiritually alive is to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's what Titus 3, 5, and 6 is talking about, that we're... We are saved by the mercy of God through the washing of regeneration, a term that means to be born again. 
So the dead, these are all spiritually dead, the small and the great. We might put it this way. These are the insignificant and the significant. These are the people who are poor to the people who are rich. It doesn't matter what their position in life. All the spiritually dead are going to be there standing before God, and the books are opened. So we have this plural word, uh, books were opened. This represents the books of works, which contains a list of everyone's morality, everyone's good deeds. And so uh, it's not just their sins. Remember, their sins were paid for just like yours are paid for, right? So um, this is all their righteousness, and they're going, it's going to be evaluated. And then another book is opened. It's called the Book of Life. The Book of Life has listed in it those who have trusted in Christ as Savior and received eternal life. Now, the dead, when it said, are judged or evaluated according to his works. So the salvation here, what we're looking at here is, are we, they going to be saved? Do they have enough righteousness? So the dead are judged according to their works by the things that are written down in the book. Do they measure up to that high standard of God? And the reality is, is that they won't. God's not saying you have the wrong kind of righteousness, He's given them the benefit of the doubt. He says, even if it's the right kind of righteousness, it doesn't measure up. doesn't matter how many times you went to church. doesn't matter how many times you were baptized. doesn't matter who baptized you, what church you went to. None of the, it doesn't matter how much money you gave. It doesn't matter how much money you gave to charity. It doesn't matter how many nice deeds you did for people. It doesn't measure up to the kind of righteousness that God is looking for. Revelation 20, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. So that's everybody who has been in their interim bodies in, um, in punishment and torments. Everything de- delivered up. Everyone now stands before the eternal judge of the universe. And they were judged, each one according to their works. And it doesn't say evil works here. It doesn't say they're bad works. It just says all their works is going to say, okay, we're piling up all your works, and they've got to measure up to here, but nobody's ever gets any higher than this. So it just isn't enough. And so in verse 14, we're told, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So all of those who died don't have the right kind of righteousness. They're cast into the lake of fire. Verse 15, and anyone not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, what do you have to do to get written in the book of life? You have to have righteousness. You have to have perfect righteousness, something we can't get on our own. We can only get by trusting in Christ. Scripture says, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. That's Jesus Christ, what bore the sin penalty on the cross. Why? So that the righteousness of God could be found in us. We have to have his righteousness. Well, let me use this chart to show how things are going to go. Here we have Sheol. Sheol in the Hebrew, Hades in the Greek. 
the former paradise is no longer occupied because those were Old Testament believers who were taken to heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, at his uh, at his at the time of his resurrection between the crucifixion and resurrection. There's a great gulf, and then there's torments. Torments were where the Old Testament unbelievers went, and then there's a prison for fallen angels. Okay, they are going to give up the dead, and they are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be the book of life and the book of man's works. So the book of man's works is the basis for the evaluation and they don't measure up to righteousness, and so they are then sentenced to the lake of fire. That's the great white throne judgment. Now, let's go back to this issue of righteousness. God is perfectly holy. Holiness usually is a representative of two of God's attributes, his righteousness and his justice. His righteousness uh, represents the standard of his character the perfection of his character. Justice is the application of that righteous standard to his creatures. Now, as human beings, we lack righteousness. We do not have perfect righteousness at all, and so we cannot have a relationship with God because righteousness cannot love unrighteousness. And so as Isaiah 64, 6 says, our righteousness is a filthy garment. And Christ was made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So as our sin, our unrighteousness is imputed to Christ on the cross, he paid that penalty on our behalf. That means whether you accept it or not, it's paid. If you and I go out to dinner and we go to the finest restaurant in town and we have the finest food on the menu and the bill comes, and I pay the bill while you went off to the bathroom and you come back, the bill's been paid. You can't do anything about it. The bill's been paid. You may not want to accept it. It's a real payment, okay? Now, that analogy breaks down a little bit but because in, in reality and salvation, we can, we can reject that payment, but that uh, but actually, we can't reject the payment. The payment is true for everybody. But that's not the only issue to get into heaven. This is justification. So our righteousness, when we trust in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us so that we are declared righteous by God. But you see, there are three problems. Three problems. If you like baseball, you can say these are the three strikes against each one of us. There are three basic problems. Problem number one is that, is that we are spiritually dead. We are born spiritually dead. Problem number two is that we don't have the right kind of righteousness. We don't have the right kind of righteousness. And problem number three is that we're under condemnation by God and, and, and possess the spiritual death imputed to us from Adam for Adam's original sin. Now, at the cross, Christ paid the penalty for that sin. He paid it in full. So, so that takes care of that third strike. So the penalty's paid. But what's the problem? The problem is we're still spiritually dead, and we still lack righteousness. The only way to get righteousness is to trust in Christ. 
The only way to be regenerate, so we're no longer spiritually dead but spiritually alive, is to trust in Christ. He paid the penalty. So if you're an unbeliever, he paid your penalty. The issue isn't sin at the great white throne judgment. The issue is works. Are your works good enough? Well, the only way your works can be good enough is if you have the righteousness of Christ and have his perfect works. And then God will save you. But if you don't have his perfect righteousness, there's no salvation. So Christ had a true substitutionary death on the cross. He paid everyone's penalty for sin. That doesn't save anybody, though, because they're still spiritually dead and they're still unrighteous. It's only when they trust in Christ or they regenerate and receive Christ's righteousness that they can have eternal life. And then God is free to bless us. Now, this is exactly what the Scriptures teach in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and following. Now, this is a passage we've gone over quite a bit, and to me it's one of the clearest passages, but it gets a little fuzzy when we look at it in English. The Greek really helps with the Greek grammar, and hopefully these slides will help with that. Paul begins by saying, and you, that is you Colossian believers who are now believers, who are now spiritually alive, you, and then that phrase being dead, it should be understood as a, um, as a sort of a temporal participle there, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. When you were dead, uh, the parallel in Ephesians 2, 1 says, we were born dead in our trespasses and sins. We're born spiritually dead, without hope, without eternal life, no place to go. And so that's what Paul's describing here. You, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made, he has made alive together with him. At, we, that was our condition. We were spiritually dead. We believed in Jesus, non-meritorious. His merit, all the merit is on the cross, not in the faith. And when we trust in Christ, he made us alive together with him. That's, that's regeneration. Because he had forgiven us all trespasses. Golly, when did he do that? Did he, did he forgive us of all of our trespasses when we, when we were saved, when we trusted in him? Let's see what the passage says. He has made us alive together with him because, it, it actually causal there, because he has forgiven you of all trespasses, and then it's temporal. When he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Uh, other translations say when he wiped out the certificate of debt against us. What's that? That's that, that death penalty. When did he, he, he wipe out the death penalty? Look at the last sentence. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Or a better translation would be he's t he took it out of the way when he nailed it to the cross. When did he nail it to the cross? This is the indictment against you that says you are spiritually dead. That's the penalty for Adam's sin. When did he nail that to the cross? The cross happened in A.D. 33. He nailed that certificate to the cross in A.D. 33. When he did that, it wiped out that certificate of death. He forgave you. That word forgive means to cancel a debt. 
He canceled the debt of your trespasses in 33 AD when he nailed that indictment to the cross. That's when your sin was paid for, not when you believed in Jesus. It was paid for for everybody, believer and unbeliever, for Muhammad, for Buddha, for Joseph Smith, for every reprobate that's ever lived that never trusted in Christ. Their sin was paid for on the cross. But that didn't make them spiritually alive. It doesn't make it, they don't become spiritually alive until they trust in Christ. So that's the point. He makes us alive together when him, I blew through all these different slides rather than go through them. He has made us alive together with him because he canceled in the past all the legal guilt of our trespasses. That was at the cross, okay? He did that when he wiped out the handwriting of requirements, which was contrary to us, and he has completely lifted it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. All that happened at the cross. So John 3.18 says, He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already. What's the difference between the condemned and the not condemned? Works? Church membership? Ah, they were Americans. No, it's faith. The one who believes is not condemned. Believes what? Believes on him. That is, believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. He's not condemned because he sinned. He's not condemned because he committed adultery. He's not condemned because he committed mass murder. He's not committed, he condemned because he was a racist. He's not condemned because he, was a, uh, he committed genocide. None of those things. He's not condemned because of sin. He's condemned because he didn't believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, a question comes up. Well, what about people who didn't believe? Aren't they punished at the judgment seat of Christ? I mean, at the great white throne judgment for their sin? No, Jesus actually paid for it, so it's out of the way. Here's the question. What about statements that say that a person dies in their sin? You have passages like John 8, 24, where Jesus tells the Pharisees, that if you don't believe, you'll die in your sins. Does that mean for your sins? Get a dictionary. Look up the word in and look up the word for. They don't mean the same thing. But I know some people who want to say that that's what this says. In your sins is not the same thing. So one day I did a, did a search and started looking at this phrase, in your sins. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, we read, this is the section where Paul's talking about the resurrection of Christ. And he says, and, if, and he says, we're the most foolish of all if Christ didn't rise from the dead. And then he says, if Christ is not risen, if he didn't rise from the dead, then your faith is futile. Your faith is empty. You are still, what? In your sins. Okay, what does this phrase, in your sin, mean? Well, he uses it, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 1, that you were born dead in your trespasses and sins. There he joins two words. He's got a compound object. So what does it mean to be in your sins? It means to be spiritually dead. In, in the passage we just looked at, in Colossians 2, 12, 
He doesn't say in your trespasses and sins. He says in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, which is the same thing as sin. So in your sins is not the same as for your sins. In your sin is just an idiom for being spiritually dead. If you don't trust in Christ, you die in your sins. You die spiritually dead. And if you're spiritually dead, you're going to show up at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. So here we have a look at our our final overview here. The judgment seat of Christ is for church-age believers only. At the end of the tribulation believer, Old Testament saint, at the end of the tribulation period, Old Testament saints will be resurrected, and that's when they're judged. Tribulation saints who died during the tribulation will be resurrected. That's when they'll be judged. Uh, The surviving... Gentiles and Jews are judged at that point. Those who are believers go into the kingdom. Those who aren't uh, go probably to Hades. And then we have the judgment of the false prophet and the Antichrist. And then we have the millennial kingdom where Satan and his demons are imprisoned in the abyss. And then at the end of the millennial kingdom... Hades gives up all the dead of all the ages, and that's when the unbelievers are judged, and then they are sent to the lake of fire. Okay, any questions? It doesn't say that anywhere. It does not say that. No, it doesn't say that. That was that was one way to explain what I took. A lot of time to explain Sunday and the time before on a latotes. When Jesus said in, Re- in Revelation 3, 4, and 5 that I will not blot your name out, that is not saying that he ever blotted anybody's name out. That is an affirming a positive that their name is permanently in the book of life. The interpretation that tried to handle that by saying that it was, uh, that, that they're born with their, with their name there misunderstood that whole idiom in Revelation 3, 4, and 5. And and that's a latotes, and that's where that comes from. So it's not related to that. If you want to connect that to the death of infants, it's another issue. The death of infants is covered because they never reach the age of accountability. They can never exercise volition toward toward God positively, and so they are automatically saved by the grace of God. But it doesn't have anything to do with the Revelation 3 passage. Okay. Um, Any other questions? Yes. At one point, I I was troubled at the idea that these people who had never heard of the name of Jesus would end up at the lake of fire. But uh, what has helped me is, is to understand how perhaps a billion or more do know of him and still reject him, and that's the greater mystery to me. Right. That, that's, a, that's a great point. He, he made an observation that was that he, like many people, have had a problem with what do you do with the millions or billions who allegedly never heard? And, uh, and many of them never heard, or allegedly never heard, and they rejected. But here you have billions and billions in the millennial kingdom who did hear. On the, another part of that is that nobody never heard. Everybody is given nonverbal revelation called general revelation in the creation that the heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 make it very clear that there is more than enough evidence in the creation to hold people accountable 
for accepting God. And if they turn toward God in positive volition on the basis of general revelation and say, Lord, I look at the stars, I look at the earth, this couldn't have happened by chance, I want to know who made this, I want to really understand if there is a God, then God will give you more revelation and more specific revelation. But if at that point of God awareness or God consciousness and you say, well, I really am just going to worship this tree that satisfies things for me. I'm going to worship the rock or the lizard or whatever. Then God's not going to give you any more revelation. You've rejected what he's given you. He's not going to give you more. But even though what he's given you isn't enough to save you, if you want to know more, he will give you more. And so everybody's got a level of accountability. Anything else? That's right. God is not willing that any should perish. He gives everybody enough so that they can in turn seek more. John? Will the judgment of Christ on the cross be considered a judgment? Not not in the sense we're talking about the judgments on the human race. Okay. Now I wanted to cover one more. I'm going to wait until we come. I come back from Kiev. There's one other topic in dispensationalism I want to cover, and that is the issue of progressive dispensationalism. And progressive dispensationalism, for those of you who don't know, is what I believe is an aberration. It is not in the stream of the development of dispensational thought that was given birth to by several Dallas Theological Seminary graduates in the 1980s. And it caused quite a, has caused quite a commotion. It's interesting, the 80s and the 90s, all of this stuff was a big issue. And now it's not. I mean, I, I don't ever hear people really talking about it much anymore. But it is very important from several vantage points. A lot of people just sort of assume it in a lot of ways, and you will hear it at times, and so... People need to be aware of that. So we will look at that. That will be our final lesson in the series on God's plan for the ages. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to look at them and to be reminded of your grace, that you have provided more than enough evidence of your existence. You've provided a worldwide witness through many believers time and time again, century after century, that the gospel has gone out throughout the world, yet people reject it because of their own negative volition, not because of environment, not because of of economics or politics or empires or education or any other human factor. It's just a matter of personal volition. And, Father, we need to be reminded that eventually we as church-age believers will be evaluated on the basis of how we use that which you've given us, the grace that you have given us, and how we uh, have used our time in terms of walking uh, by the Spirit and redeeming the time so that maximum amount of time in our life is con- it contributes towards glorifying you, and that only comes as we grow to spiritual maturity. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with those things, and we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.